Well, good morning. Everyone doing well? Amen. Amen. You've made it through Thanksgiving. You've made it through Black Friday, kind of, because it goes on for like two years now. And you've made it through a storm in your hair at church. So we are really blessed that you are here, and we have some amazing stuff that we're going to be going through. My name is Pastor Matt, and I'm going to be walking us into part four of our Ambassadors in the Kingdom series. So we've been going through the book of Philippians to walk through what it means to be ambassadors that represent the kingdom. And over the last three weeks, Pastor Lance has kind of been walking us through chapter one. Yes, three weeks to go through chapter one. And last week, he finished chapter one talking about how Paul kind of declared that we need to learn, just like the Philippians did, how to proclaim Jesus everywhere, how to display the message of God using our lives. And he talked about how even when Paul was in prison, people were doing it for the wrong motives and they were doing it with the wrong intentions. And yet that was still to God's glory. And he, and Pastor Lance talked about how we just need to make sure we're doing it right, that we're approaching it in the right sense. And then he went through Paul's very famous passage where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Where Paul unpacks this reality that to him, every breath, every day that he wakes up, he knows that he has a chance to live as an ambassador for the gospel of Jesus. And that is worth every day, no matter what trial, no matter what problem. But to him, if he dies in prison or out of prison, he's like, that's a bonus. I get to be in the presence of Christ. It's a win-win situation. And altogether, all of chapter one is urging all Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live standing firm with one another, side by side in oneness. And so it was a great piece of scripture that we walked through. Now here, we're gonna see in chapter two, the strongest possible appeal for Christian unity coming out in the New Testament. And it's the kind of appeal that many Christians seem prone to not take very seriously today. Because when you look at the Christian church, we are very divided. We are very disconnected. We are very judgmental. We are very separated in all the different things we look at. And so I was spending some time and I was looking at some of the different things that I see the church divided over t today, just in, in America. Gender roles in leadership, racial dynamics, political perspectives, and whether you should participate in politics. And of course, I thought it would be wise to ask some of our leadership whether or not, and I'm going on my phone to uh, share with you some stuff. I asked some of our leadership, what, are, what do you think are some of the things that we're divided by or in in the church? And the first four or five texts were serious, and they covered a lot of the things I shared. And then within five texts, everything went downhill. <laughs> and so then one of the leaders said, you didn't ask what we should divide over, white meat versus dark meat, skinny jeans versus wide leg jeans, or Star Wars versus Star Trek. And then one of the other leaders said, I just want to know who is still sticking with wide leg jeans. And then another leader said, bell bottoms. Those have always been my favorite. And then Bishop, of course, says, somehow I knew at some point the responses would take a turn. I get a couple other comments. And then eventually one of the leaders says, as long as I don't have to buy anything, sounds great. And then another leader writes, skinny jean weekend, hashtag twinning. And then one of the final leaders, and he wrote this after Thanksgiving, he said, after yesterday, all jeans are skinny jeans. 
So that just gives you that reality of uh, we can look at these serious things and we can also be funny and laugh a little bit. But although this is amusing, this issue of unity is a core issue for the church. And it was in the first century. And almost every single one of Paul's letters, he repeats this subject and this need for unity. Jesus himself would say it in John 17, 11, He would say, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then believers who ought to be together in the gospel, we often find some way of disagreeing with one another. We find the, the greatest and the smallest things to divide over, and then we become bitter, and we become jealous, and ultimately, Paul talks in Galatians 5, he says we start biting and devouring one another, all because we want to be right. Now, I could start passing around a mic and have everybody in the room share about how they've seen division and tension in the church, and we would be here for years, if not decades. And so this is a serious issue, and this chapter is going to lead the way for us to review our life, knowing that we've entered into a relationship with Jesus, and that we are part of the church, and we're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to live distinctively because of God's initiative in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're going to use the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's page 980, and if you're too afraid to do the voice activated, just Siri, open Bible app. Hey, Google, open Bible app. Alexa, open Bible app. And hopefully your phone is opening right now. It won't hit listen to my voice, but no one ever does that. I just think that you should start doing that in church out loud. That's me. Now, as you're turning there, um, I had the chance over this last weekend to go to a conference down in San Diego. It was the Society of Biblical Literature Conference. And uh, it was a, a great time because it was just Bible and theology nerd central. <laughs> it was just all these different scholars and theologians from the Old and New Testament, and I'm sitting there next to people like N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and John Walton, and I, you know, I'm like, ah! And you're like, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> but these are the people that are spending their whole lives invested into studying and exploring and putting all that background into the text. And I got a chance to talk to them quite a bit about this passage because I was working on this the whole time I was there. And so what was cool is I got a chance to talk with a lot of different scholars and people about this, and that's going to come up a little bit today. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 1, where it's going to talk about the connection we have with Jesus and the connection we have with the church. So Paul's continuing on from chapter 1, and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. And so he starts with these four realities of our encounter with Jesus and our encounter with the church. And he starts by saying, if there isn't this encouraging challenge in experiencing Jesus Christ, if there's this encouragement that also pushes you in how you live, if there's this incentive of love, now a lot of our Bibles say comfort, and what it's talking about is really if there's such a peace that it actually drives you and it, and it persuades you to move for those in need, if that reality exists because of the comfort of the love you have in Jesus, if there is any shared participation with the Spirit, and it actually uses the word koinonia, 
which a lot of people tend to know, it's a Greek word for fellowship. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if the Lord of the universe indwells us and we all share this common connection and participation with one another, the Spirit is a spirit of unity, which means there'll be a spirit of unity among us. And then he lastly says, if there's any affection and any sympathy. And now he's taking it onto a personal and an emotional level. He says, you've experienced the mystery, sorry, you've experienced the mercy and the compassion of God, and thus you now have these new sensitivities, these new hearts, these new affections to identify deeply with other people. And if this is all there, if all these supernatural realities exist because you've encountered Jesus and you've been a part of the church, they amount to something and we cannot resist them. And now Paul's going, I want you to reciprocate this among yourselves. And that's where he moves on and says, complete his joy. And I love it because the the language there is actually this picture that's an idiom of a glass full to the brim. So have you ever like poured yourself coffee and you filled it up too much and you still needed to add milk and so that it was right at the top and you're like walking over to your table going and it's spilling everywhere? That's the type of joy Paul's saying he wants. He wants joy that's at the very brim because that's going to honor God, that's going to bless Paul, but more than anything, it's going to bless you. And so he says, complete his joy by being in this together unified, bonded togetherness. And so he says, be of the same mind. Think the same things. Paul has talked all throughout chapter one about us being perfected by God. That's how he thinks of the Philippians. He's saying, think about this perfection and this work God is doing in each of you. Think that together. You have a common purpose. He says, have the same love for one another, the same love that Paul has for them, the same love that Jesus has for them, the same love that they show Jesus. He's saying, show that same love with one another. But more than anything, he says, be of one accord, which he's really trying to say, be one-souled. Be so united that you are driven by the same desire and you're directing your thoughts into that one purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's challenging them. And and the thing you have to understand is he's trying to call them to unity once again, but it's because Paul knows that people can be in unity over so many things that are miserable and destructive. Now, some of us, all we have to do is think back to our high school or our middle school years, that when you get a group of students together, you can be stupid together. I can tell you so many stories, and my parents can tell you more, of me and my friends getting together and coming up with brilliant ideas, like, let's play car tag. Stupid. Or, hey, it's 4th of July. Let's take all the gunpowder out of the fireworks and put them in a giant cup and light it in front of a UPS truck that's driving by. Stupid. Let's kidnap our friends with duct tape and handcuffs on Greenback Lane where everybody's watching and throw them in a white van and the police show up at your house. (laughs) Stupid, right? When people are unified in a purpose, you can do things that are destructive. Take it a little bit more serious, you see it in revolutions around the world, in history, people coming together under one accord, one purpose, one mind. You even see it in gangs where people come together in a unity and they go, together, we're going to destroy these people. So you can see that unity can be something that can actually be misused, but Paul's trying to tell us how to do this 
in the right way because he's saying your God connection drives your connection with one another. This experience, this encounter you've had will help you to resist this internal division and have unified and bonded living. But I know a lot of us, we look at this and we go, okay, but how? Because this is a nice ideal, but how does this happen? And so this is where we have to look at verses three and four because Paul's gonna tell us how to do this together thinking, this mutual love, this united living. This is what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how you have that unity. And he gives us this warning language. These are negative expressions. And if you notice in the middle of it, in the beginning of verse four, this is a reality that's given to each one of us. And that's very absolute language that's binding all people, not just leaders, but all people to practice this. And not just all people in Philippi, but all people in the church and all people at all times. That means that Paul's speaking to us. And he says, do nothing by self-seeking or according to conceit. This has to do with exalting yourself based on your ambition, your wisdom, your cultural attainments, your stuff, your experiences, your strengths, your followers, your blessings. He says, don't exalt yourself based on all this because this all works for itself. It's selfish and it doesn't work for the fellowship of the faith. It prevents unity. In Galatians 5, Paul will say, this is exactly what causes factions is this self-seeking, self-exaltation. And instead, he says, function in humility, where he says, count others more significant than you. And humility is the direct opposite of self-exaltation because humility views others as more excellent than you. It's about you having a mentality and an attitude where you're more lowly and you go, everyone else is so excellent and I love it. And I see it in every person. And I always look at this and I go, what would this look like in my life? What would it look like in the workplace? What would it look like in your home if nine out of 10 of your comments were you talking about how excellent other people were? If it was you going, man, I love what I see in this person and what God's doing here, and I love what's happening with you, and and all it is is you talking about the riches and the awesome things that you're seeing in other people. What if nine out of 10 of the things you posted were not of what you're doing or what you're experiencing or what you're blessed about, but you're sharing what you're seeing other people experiencing and what other people are blessed by? And you're going, I love what God is doing with them. I love what God is doing here. This is the humility that counts others more significant than you. And that humility will direct you to fix your attention, not only on your own interests, but that of others. And so Paul's talking about this difference between selfishness and togetherness. And he's trying to help us fix ourselves on the good points and the qualities and the values and the priorities of others. He's saying, look at them, and when you see them, let them be an incentive for your life. Let them be something that makes you want to praise God because you see not just what God's doing in you, but what God's doing in all. And this is the the mentality Paul's trying to set. Now, I don't think Paul's saying you can't look at your own interests in any way, 
He's not saying to neglect them, but I think Paul is saying focus more, focus deeper on others. Don't be so preoccupied with your own affairs and your own actions and your own situations and your own challenges that you miss what God is doing with all of us. Now, this hurdle, to me, automatically holds us back. That when Paul says this, I think automatically a lot of us go, that's still too hard. I don't think we can do this unity thing. It's too hard for me to look at the interests of others, to look at others as more significant. And I want you to understand that this hurdle is a brick wall, but to make you feel better, we are not the worst people in it. The Philippians were. And so I wanna give you a little digression where I give you some of the context of Philippi so that you'll understand that who Paul is speaking to are people that are so caught up in a lifestyle of honor and exaltation that he's trying to undo this in what he's teaching. So to give you some background on the city of Philippi, about 2,500 years ago, there was a king named Philip of Macedonia and he discovers gold. He goes there gets all this gold, starts mining it, and gets so much gold that he goes, you know what, I better build a city and put a military there to protect the gold and protect the mining. Eventually, he's assassinated. And as happens, his son gets all the wealth. His son gets a chance to go and extend the empire, and a lot of us know who he is because his name is Alexander the Great. Do you already see the exaltation and the pride there? His name is Alexander the Great. <laughs> He's all about that. So fast forward a few centuries. Well, a few, yeah, a few decades. And now you have a battle happening in this town. Well, by the way, Philip decided that if you're going to build a military town, you should give it a good name, like Philippi, named after you. He, a couple centuries, or sorry, a couple decades later, there's a battle there with a Roman general named Octavian who battles two guys, Cassius and Brutus. A lot of us may know them because they're the two that assassinated Julius Caesar. Et tout, et tout, brute. <laughs> when this happens, this is when the Roman Empire starts becoming all about an emperor leading. And this is where Roman emperor worship starts extending and growing, that people start worshiping the Caesar. And so by 9 BC, you're finding inscriptions about the Caesar, and they're all giving this evangelion, this evangelism, this good news that the Caesar reigned. And they would walk around saying, Kyrios Kaiser, Kyrios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And that's all happening first in this town and all throughout the Roman Empire. So in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas come into the city of Philippi and they say, Jesus is Lord, everyone's like, what? Wait, no, Kyrios Kaiser, no, Kyrios Iusus, Jesus is Lord. And now you can see the tension that's happening because this is a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But the thing that was happening is that in Rome, everyone was preoccupied with their pursuit of status and recognition and power. And the word they used in that culture was honor. It was all about their honor. Cicero in about 90 BC says, by nature we yearn and hunger for honor, and once we have glimpsed, as it were, a part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to do to bear and suffer in order to secure that honor. And so that honor was set up in the social hierarchy. You had the Senate, which was 600 men that kind of ruled the Greek empire and eventually the, the Hellenistic empire. 
And then you had another group right beneath them that were the equestrian class. They were the next highest level of the social hierarchy. The people in charge of training, raising, selling, and trading horses. Never would you have thought that car salesmen at one point in history were on the highest level of the social hierarchy. But they were. The next class right under that was the decurians, who were another type of social elite, but there wasn't many of them. And then there were citizens. Citizens in the Roman Empire meant that you could vote, you could own property, there was due process of law if you were arrested and tried, and you had many other same rights and freedoms that a lot of us experience in America today. To have citizenship meant everything in terms of your honor. Then beneath that, there were freedmen that had some of those liberties, but they still were not full citizens. And then at the very bottom were slaves. And slaves had no rights, and they were the only people that owed obedience to anyone. No one else within that hierarchy ever had to obey someone else, even in that hierarchy, only slaves. And this is all going to become really important in what we read. In that culture, what you wore defined who you were, what you tra were transported by defined who you were, where you sat at a feast defined who you were. And as one author puts it, Rome was the most status-conscious society in the ancient world, and no city was more obsessed with it than Philippi. <laughs> because everyone there would scrape together their resources to erect an inscription that said how awesome their achievements and their title was. People wanted honor for themselves, and the biggest insult you could be given in that culture was for your honor to be called into question. And the opposite of that honor was humility. For you to be humbled meant you lost a title, you lost a place, and somebody more important than you took it. And that was something to be avoided at all costs. There was nothing that was positive about that. The idea that someone would humble themselves or purposely take themselves down the ladder was unthinkable, and they didn't even have language to describe it in the Latin. So when Paul comes in in Acts 16, and when Paul writes here in Philippians 2, this instruction is upside down, because he's calling everybody in Philippi, all the new Christians, as well as us, not to disqualify or distinguish between other church members or other churches on the ground of social standing. And so you see that everything Paul's giving is not just good advice, it's contextual advice, not only for the there and then, but for the here and now. And so what happens is Paul is saying in these other two verses that we live distinctively in the culture we're in, humbly counting ourselves as better and unselfishly looking to others. Now, this is where there's a question for you to, to talk about in your missional communities or to talk about in your families or just to talk about with friends. Because I think when Paul's talking about this selfish ambition and looking out for the interest of others, it makes us have to stop and go, when was the last time I went to a missional community or a class or I came here to serve or I came just to come into church and sit in service and I did that for the good and the interest of others? When's the last time you came and it wasn't just about you being fed and your kids being watched and you feeling like you felt good leaving? Because this is the, the switch around that Paul's talking about. When, it was, when did you come to church to see others thrive and grow and not just yourself? 
So talk about that a little bit more beyond this. But this is where we're going to move into the main section of this passage, this amazing nature of Jesus that models this. And we're going to about to read some powerful words about our Savior, and we're going to see his humility. We're going to see him forsaking his interest for the sake of others and the welfare of others, and what he does reforms our lives. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those are some powerful words. And you're seeing right in verse five that he says, we need to function by this mindset and by the action of Jesus that models, that models this. This is amazing, considering the nature of who Jesus is as God and considering the place that Paul is saying this in Philippi. And he says, think internally about this, how it's going to work in you. Because any person that's in union with Jesus Christ, anybody that's a follower of Jesus, shares the same spirit and is guided by the same patterns of Jesus that we're reading about here. And so Paul is sharing this to show us that this can be reproduced in our lives. And it can be reproduced in a culture that's status and honor obsessed. And so a lot of people look at this and they go, this section of Philippians that we just read is the most important in the entire letter. They call it the Christ hymn. And it's not hymn like the way a lot of us know it, where it's like, amazing, great. It's not as much of that type of rhythm. It's the fact that it's more of a creedal statement. It's something that gives you the core of what you believe about Jesus and the core of what you believe about how we live our lives. And every word that's used in this is weighed and measured and shapes the reader's expectations. And what you're going to see within it is it's giving you all four levels of Jesus for you to see. And what I mean by that, and you can write these down, is it's going to show you Jesus before Bethlehem. It's going to show you Jesus truly becoming human, Advent, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. It's going to show you the Jesus who experienced death. And then lastly, it's going to show you the Jesus who resurrected and ascended. And it's giving you the full picture of the nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All in these few little lines. So let's walk through this. It says that though he was being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And first we have to start with that word being, because what it's telling you is that this being was both previous, it's a, it's a word that has to do with it existed before, and it continues afterwards. So because of this, he really and truly possesses God's form because it's not just something he gets at the end and it's not something he just got when he was on earth. He always had it. But then it tells us that he's in the form of God. Now, one of the things when I was at this conference is that's what I kept asking all these different scholars and theologians and commentators. I was like, what does it mean to be in the form of God? And they'd be like, well, the Morphe Theos, blah, 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 blah. And they would go off on these rants. And I loved it, and I nerded out on it. But it's this really important question, because when we're talking about Jesus being in the form of God, we have to go, is he talking about shape or body 
Or, or a lot of us, we know like the very church answer is, well, God is spirit. So we're talking about the form being spirit. But that's not the term that dominates the Bible. The, the term that we get to talk about God's form is the term glory. In the Hebrew, it's kavod. And here, it's, it's this idea of the weight of his presence. So that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul's going to say that the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. And what's going to happen is when he's talking about the glory, he's talking about how God manifests his identity, how God shows his deepest being and his character. How did Abraham experience God? How did Moses experience God? How did David experience God? How did the prophets experience God? How did the people of Israel experience God? How did they come into contact with his glory? And what did it do when they did come into contact with it? That is the form that Jesus is in. He's in possession of the same reality. In John 17, Jesus would say, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Where Jesus is saying, I had the glory, I was in the form before we even created this beautiful ball and this beautiful universe. In Hebrews 1, they would say the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This was important to the church. Even in around 320, when they came up with a creed to work off of these New Testament texts, the Nicene Creed would say, he is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, of the very same nature of the Father. And it's all pointing to his glory. But it tells us that although he was being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And when it's talking about equality, it means he's not functioning in the same manner. Now, it's not saying that he wasn't. It's saying he did not count that function as something that he needed to have for what he was about to do. And so really, it's not about the equality statement. It's about why did he not consider it a thing to be grasped? And this is something that when I talk to a lot of other people, they're like, oh, it all comes back to this term and what this term, is, this term means. And there's whole books this thick about this term. It's harpagamos. You're not going to remember that. <laughs> but in the end, when everybody is discussing it and exploring it, the best word they come closest to to epitomize it is the word exploited. He did not consider equality with God something to be ex exploited. And what that means is he was not willing to hold on and possess it for his own advantage and his good. And so really, it's directing you towards verse 7. It's directing you towards the fact that He's going to empty himself. He's going to humble himself. So he's not holding on to this glory and using its function. Now, a lot of people make the connection with Adam, and they say, just like in Genesis 3, Adam sought to grasp at the glory of God at the tree, taking of the fruit, and by doing that, lost the glorious image bearing. But Jesus, when he's taken into the desert and he's tempted by Satan, he goes through a parallel temptation but he does not renounce what was, or he renounces what is his by right and chooses the way of suffering for the advantage of all. This is the message of the gospel. But look at verse seven, because now it moves into Jesus truly becoming humanity, becoming man, and the wonderful mystery there, because it says he emptied himself, or some translations say made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant where you're getting this personal self-imposed decision that he makes 
to empty himself. And almost every scholar, every book will talk about the connection with the the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53 that talks about the suffering servant, the anointed one, the Messiah that would come. Because in 53.12, it says that the servant will pour out his life unto death. He pours out his fullness. He spends all for the gain of others. Paul is picking up on the same language and he's saying, Jesus, just like the suffering servant, because he is the servant, empties himself. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what he empties himself of. To Jesus, it was a loved reality. It was something that he understood and he willingly, fully surrendered. And people have talked about this for centuries They're like, did he surrender all the divine attributes, but just a few that he was no longer all-knowing or ever-present? And that's not reality, because if he got rid of any of those, then he would no longer be God. All we know is that he remained truly God, even when he became what he was not, truly man. But I think the other part of verse 7 tells us what's actually happening. Because he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And this is where our English softens it because we read servant differently than we read slave. But he takes the very form of a slave, doulos. And now we get a chance to move from this realm of mystery into a reality of what he did because it's not about what he emptied himself of. It's about what he took on. And so it's not as much of what he was emptying himself, but into what did he empty himself And so he's really, it's really trying to help you see that he takes on the human attributes of a slave more than he relinquishes or gives up divine attributes. It's not as much about a subtraction, but as an addition. And again, if he takes the form of a slave, he's using that same term form. It's the way that everyone has encountered a slave. So you have to go back into the Philippian shoes and go, if he's a slave, he is the lowest level that has no honor and is obedient to everyone else. Why would he do that? Why would he not come as the top level? Why would he not come as the king of kings? Why would he not come as a commander? He comes and takes on the form of a baby. He comes and takes on the form of a slave. But when you think about this, this makes total sense. Because Jesus, who being in very nature God, because it is his nature, takes on the nature of a slave because God is a God that would rather serve us than lord it over us. Our God is a God who serves. Jesus is a God who serves. Even on the night Jesus was gonna be arrested and tortured and crucified, he puts on the apparel of a slave and gets down and starts washing his disciples' feet. That is the God that we have, that although he is the creator of the universe and the almighty God, and he can command whole legions of angels, he goes, I put myself in the lowest place because I love you. And I want you to see that I care about your interest. And then it moves us into the advent proper in verse eight. And it says, But being born or made in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. And now it takes us again using terminology like likeness and form. And you see that they keep bringing up the same words because when it says he's in the likeness of men, it's trying to say 
It's the same kind. It's the same fashion. It's the same appearance. He had the form of a human being, and he functioned like a human being. And it's because they wanted people to understand he was still God, but he was very much still man. And I mentioned that creed in, in 325, the Nicene Creed, where they wanted to clarify this, and they said, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance. Because they wanted everyone to understand he was truly a man. He was not like a man. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2 that the whole fullness of deity, all of God, dwells in bodily form to communicate this. And it's trying to help people understand that anyone who met and encountered the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem and who took on flesh and lived and taught and did miracles... They were able to see him and touch him and smell him and hear him. John actually takes the time in the beginning of his letter in 1 John to highlight this, to show people that they are the witnesses of the human Jesus, but the God that is God. And so Paul's doing something here in his letter. He's doing something that the Roman culture and the Philippian culture and our culture would never do. He's taking the one who drew the universe together and showing that he made the ultimate sacrifice of status and honor. God becomes a human being and he's becoming a helpless baby and he's becoming a slave. But that's not even low enough. Let's look at what he says next. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Where now it takes us to the Jesus who experienced death. If he takes on this human attribute, if he takes on this slave status, what would he do with this difference? Would he hold on to it for self or would he do something for the benefit of others? And it's telling us that his humility takes him to the lowest place. Because remember, the Philippian culture is one that they would never humble themselves. That was a tragedy, not a virtue. And the only person that was ever obedient was a slave. And here he's saying, Jesus was obedient to death on a cross. Jesus was not just a slave, he was a crucified slave. And that to them was even a greater humiliation, a greater lowering of who he was. And Paul is trying to show them why this is so paramount. Because this humiliation showed that Jesus took on flesh and was not functioning according to his rule or his majesty or his power or authority. But he was making himself obedient to the one thing that had no power over him. Because for all of humans, death is a necessity. We all have to deal with it. No one in this room is going to escape it. But for Jesus, he's higher than that. He's God. But he submits himself. He makes himself obedient to death. And so this humility becomes everything. And so if you look at your fill in the blank, which you thought I forgot, <laughs> the fill in the blank is humility is the Christian way of life. Humility is the Christian way of life. This is the mind that we're supposed to have as we relate to one another in the church and as the church across the, the state, the region, the world. It establishes a new standard by which honor and status are ascribed. But you'll see that the text is not done. Look at verses 9 to 11. 
Now we get a chance to move into the Jesus who ascended. We talk about his ascension here and his resurrection. There was a famous preacher in San Diego named Shadrach Lockridge who did that very famous message where he talked about how Friday's here. And he was talking about the death of Jesus. But Sunday's a coming. And he just kept saying that over and over again for half an hour. And everyone's like, amen, amen. And they just got worked up because that truth was everything. And look, that we're going to get a chance to see it here in verse 9 to 11. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth and on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Paul turns us to this formative, glorious truth. And so far in this whole hymn, this whole creed, he hasn't said the name yet. And now he's like, I'm going to tell you the name twice. It's Jesus. And the emphasis changes. And now you're seeing it's the Father's turn to act. And it tells you that God exalts and bestows a powerful name, the highest name on Jesus. And it's the highest name that Jesus can be given because it's the title and name Lord. Because the name for God in the Old Testament was Yahweh. And then when they translated it into the Greek, it was Kyrios. And now God's bestowing that term Kyrios, Lord, onto Jesus. Because he is the Lord. And the honor that Jesus refused is now granted upon him by God's good pleasure. And he's worshipped in the place that God has worshipped. And so we get a chance to see that he who is humbled, he who emptied himself, he who is humbling himself, is now exalted. His self-humility is what sparks God's exalting action. And this is what I love, talking about our kingdom series, is that it's only in a universe where God rules that you see humiliation leading to exaltation. It's only when we function by the kingdom of God that you're able to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's only when you live according to the kingdom of God that you're able to look to the interest of others and not just your own. It's only when God rules in this way that it happens. And you'll note that it doesn't mention the resurrection here, that Jesus lives and therefore we live. It actually emphasizes his exaltation, that he reigns forever, and therefore we live as ambassadors of his reign forever. This text is very much about kingdom. But what I like is it says at the name of Jesus, something universal happens. And it references Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, and Isaiah 42, 8. And it's going to tell you that what happens to Jesus is what was attributed to God. And now it's all steeped in the name of Jesus. And so it tells us at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And it gives you this universal sense in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All three levels of how they understood the, the world and the universe back then. And it says, all people will show this submission to the one who is in control. But not only that, every tongue in all of creation is going to confess. They're going to declare openly that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I have to pause here for a second because what a lot of people try to do with this, because we struggle, 
is a lot of people go, see, in the end, all people become Christians. All people become followers. And that's not what's happening here. Because that declaration is not a confession of salvation or a confession of belief. It's the realization at the final day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And people are either looking at it and confessing it and going, and I missed it. Or they're confessing it and going, and I know him. But all of creation is gonna experience that. And it's that name that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the core to the creed. It's the core to the confession of the church. Recognizing this. Because his name and this title is all based on the reputation and the fame of what Jesus did. It's revealing the true nature of someone. What is new is this public recognition and acknowledgement that Jesus is not just Jesus, but Jesus is Lord. And he's not just Lord, he's the Lord that did not consider equality with the glory of God something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a slave and emptied himself and humbled himself and made himself obedient to death. That is the Jesus Christ we follow. In Jesus' name, we get all the revelation of who he is. And what this means altogether is that Jesus reigns in power. Jesus reigns in power and we are a part of his kingdom. But as we close, I want to take you back to Acts 16. Because what happens is I believe when Paul wrote this, what's going through his mind is not just the confession and the creed of what Christians were believing, and it's not just him trying to give general exhortation. I think he's going back to his story that happened in Acts 16 and going, me and Silas went through this. Because if you were to read Acts 16, verses 19 to 41, Paul and Silas, during their initial visit to Philippi, come and are start saying, Jesus is Lord. And they're like, I'm, we're going to arrest you. And they arrest them, and you find this profound status reversal because they're arrested, and they're both citizens of the Roman Empire. They both have that level of honor. And they could have just said, wait a second, we're Roman citizens. You can't do this. But instead, they exploit their status for their own gain. They could have used it and they don't use it. They submit unnecessarily to being beat and then imprisoned. They become what the Latin used to call them personas mediocribas. They become nobodies. But why? Because what would happen is that God would eventually step in and act on their behalf and while they're in prison, God's gonna send an earthquake and they could get out and they don't. And you're like, why? They end up impacting the jailer. And then when they're going to be kind of punished again, they finally go, we're Roman citizens. And all the magistrates are like, ah, we're horrible. What have we done? And what happens is that you have to realize that Paul and Silas had leveraged their Roman citizenship to avoid, if they had, to avoid mistreatment. They would have totally screwed up the unity of the church in Philippi. 
Because what everybody would have, was watching is that if they would have went forward and said, well, we're Roman citizens, so treat us differently, then as the church was forming in Philippi, everyone would have said, well, you know what? It looks like these guys, although they're preaching about this equality that happens in the gospel, when they got tried, it was still about their citizenship. So really, I'm still going to function according to my status and my honor, and I'm going to treat you lower than me, and I'm not going to look out for your interest. And so Paul and Silas chose to submit themselves to this for the sake of the gospel, to make sure there was a level playing field for all representatives from any social class to respond to the gospel. And that's where we have to look at it and go, if we as Christians who claim to have the the indwelling spirit, who claim to function by the unity of God, are constantly looking out for our privilege and our honor and our status and our blessing, then we're missing it. That's what causes division. That's what causes faction. That's what causes a breakdown of relationship. And I know a lot of us, after we read all that stuff about Jesus, we go, yeah, but that's Jesus. I can't do what Jesus did. He's Jesus. He's God. You just told me. And I think what happens is Paul is trying to throw them back to this story because he's not saying, hey, this is just what God can do. This is what all of us can do. This is what Paul and Silas and I did. But let's close this out. Verses 12 to 13, Paul says, here's the worthy work that you can do. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Where in essence, he's saying, let me tell you how to react if the great goal of unity is to be reached. And he's saying, you've already lived by the gospel. You've already encountered Jesus. That's already happening. Continue to hear and to do. Continue to obey it, whether I'm there or whether I'm not. And then he says, work out your salvation. And this is where you have to get down into the terms because when it says work out, it means bring to your fullness. But have you guys noticed that I even read it in the ESV and your translations probably say it? It says, work out your own salvation. That's nowhere in the original language. All it says is bring to fullness salvation. And salvation is not here the term that we get for rescue me, save me, deliver me from my sin. It's spiritual fullness. So he's saying, bring to fullness spiritual health not just yours, bring to fullness the spiritual health of the church. Work so that everyone can thrive. And do that with fear and trembling. Do that with this reverence and this awe for one another. Not wanting to threaten the spiritual health of the church through stupid disagreements and strife. This is the struggle of unity and life together. And he's saying, Bring it to fullness. Bring spiritual thriving to fullness. Do this because it matters and it's going to bless you and it's going to honor God and it's going to make my joy complete, full to the brim. But what I like is he doesn't go, okay, Matt, do it and do it really hard. Work hard. He says, God is doing it. His work is effective. His work achieves its purpose. God is ceaselessly at work and will work 
to recreate our wills, to re-rack us, to impart his effective truth so that we can bring to fullness spiritual health in all brothers and sisters that we encounter. Not just in this church, in every church. So all of this should make us ask a couple questions. Number one, can we really glorify God if we're in conflict and divided? It's something to think about. If you have someone that's a fellow brother or sister in Christ that you feel like you are so distant because you had an argument or you have a different belief or you have a tension or a hurt or a tragedy, can we truly glorify God to the fullness if that's there? Number two, are we maybe not thriving because we hold back from truly uniting with others? Is our resistance because of our self-seeking keeping us from thriving even more? How do, how do we count the cost of disunity? And this is where I want to paint one last picture for you. We've been talking, and Pastor Lance has been talking quite a bit this year about the supernatural, about the miraculous. We just had our regional worship prayer and healing night a few weeks ago, and it was so powerful and so amazing. God was working physical and emotional and mental change in people's lives. So many awesome stories, and I hope that you were a part of it. And it wasn't just on that night. It's not that that night had a special anointing and that it was more special than other days. But what I want to talk about is how supernatural would it be and how miraculous would it be if all of Jesus' followers modeled and lived in this unity and mindset and action? What would happen if all of us suddenly we're of one mind and we were all looking for the common good and we were all looking to see one another thrive and it was no more just about me, but it was about us. And what if everything we did was to see others thrive and we all kept looking out for the interest of others, that people in this area started looking at members that come into this church and they go, what is going on? That's supernatural. That's miraculous. When people see a church united and following the model of Jesus, that people look at you this Christmas and they see your Christmas not about just your own interest or your family's interest. And they see this Christmas and this Advent as a group of people that are going, man, I'm celebrating what God's doing in the men and women I'm sitting around and I'm serving alongside of. That's miraculous. That's supernatural. And that's not happening nearly enough in our world. And I want God to do more of that. And I want him to start with me because I know I screw up in this all the time. And I don't think it's impossible, and I don't think it's unrealistic, but I do think it's the supernatural work of God led by the supernatural model of Jesus that makes this happen. And we can't resist it. So what would happen in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ if we functioned in that unity? Let me pray for us. And I'm gonna pray a psalm over you as we go. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone in this room and everybody that's watching online that God, you would put the names and the faces and even the organization names, Lord, that come to our minds where we have such division and such anger and such bitterness because of hurt 
or disagreement or tragedy, Lord, and that you would begin that work of reconciliation and unity. That, Lord, you would give us the ability to text or call or email someone and to work towards unity together once again. That, God, you would show us again by the model of your son, Jesus, what it means to humble ourselves and take on the form of a slave. That you would show us how to look out for the good and interest of others, counting them as more significant than me. And so, Lord, I pray Psalm 133 over our church, where you say by your psalmist how wonderful and how beautiful it is when brothers and sisters get along. It's like costly anointing oil flowing down head and beard, flowing down Aaron's beard, flowing down the collar of his priestly robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. Yes, that's where God commands the blessing. That's where he ordains eternal life. Amen.